Hey guys, let me tell you something. Jenna Ingle loves the oboe. She's built her business on providing high quality handmade reeds, education, and a sympathetic ear to oboists across the country. When you order from Jenna Ingle Reeds, you get prompt communication, reeds or cane handcrafted to your specifications, and cheerful, friendly customer service. All orders are mailed within one week, sometimes much faster. Single orders and monthly reed subscriptions are also welcome, and she's going to work with you to find the right combination of response, resistance, stability, and flexibility that's right for you. Double Read Dish listeners can use the code DISH, that's all caps, for 10% off your first order at JennetIngle.com. You know how we're always in the market for good quality handmade reeds? Well, MKL is the one-stop shop for handmade oboe reeds where you can try reeds from various makers and select the one that is best for you. Visit MKLReads.com and enter coupon code DOUBLEREADDISH three separate words, all caps, for free shipping on your first order. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. recording this from afar, but I actually get to see you in just a couple of days. I'm so excited. Oh my God. I'm so excited. <laughs> Although I have to say the weather today in Mississippi is absolute perfection and we are going north. <laughs> I was thinking the exact same thing. Uh, Missouri's actually been pretty nice. Not to rub it into our listeners in Sorry. the north. <laughs> <laughs> but I have to admit, I've been checking the weather occasionally just to make sure. It looks like we're going to be okay, knock on wood. Okay. But yes, I've been checking. And um, for those who don't know, we're of course talking about going to visit the Miami University Bassoon Day. (laughs) (laughs) We've got so much fun planned. Oh my God. It's going to be so awesome. First of all, thank you so much to Ryan Reynolds and the Miami University Bassoons for allowing this oboist to crash the party. (laughs) I feel like I'm just gonna like walk around being like, I'm so sorry for my kind. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Oboists are great. (laughs) Well, and I'm super excited about the approach we're taking. Of course, we were at Georgia State earlier this year, and we'll be at the University of Florida in March. Mm -hmm. But Ryan really has encouraged us to kind of take this to a Jay Leno, Johnny Carson, Ellen talk show vibe. And we definitely went the Ellen route and we've got games planned. We've got games. We've got interactions. We've got (laughs) interviews. We might even have some Oprah-esque giveaway. There's a PowerPoint involved. (laughs) That PowerPoint may or may not have embedded sound files. Patting myself on the back. Listen, that PowerPoint... 100,000% 100,000% credit to you. <laughs> I'm really excited. It's going to be a lot of fun. I'm super pumped. I think so too. I think it'll be really great. And unfortunately, I have to, well, here's the thing. Okay, so that is on Sunday, the 17th. Saturday, the 16th is my double read day at Southeast. Mm. So that gets over around 
3.30. I have to be out of town by 4. Hit the road. Drive straight to Oxford, Ohio. I'll get in around midnight. Wake up. Have tons of fun with you and the Miami bassoons. And of course, Keith Bunky will be there as well. And then as soon as it's over, I have to drive right back because I have um, something for work that I have to be at on Monday. (laughs) It's going to be an action-packed weekend. I've got a lot of podcasts downloaded because I'll be just driving a lot. Are you going to listen to yourself talk on Double Read Dish? I I have to admit, I do not listen to Double Read Dish. (laughs) I'm not like a megalomaniac. And plus I edit the interviews. So I'm there for the interviews and I edit the interviews. So I do listen to the content of each episode probably three times by the time it gets released. So no, I I don't spend, I like to diversify when I'm Mm. listening for enjoyment. (laughs) Same. (laughs) So, you know, perfect segue, but we, we have a completely different topic for this dish. <laughs> and we were thinking that it would be fun to talk about the moment that you decided to become a professional musician. Yeah. I think for me, I was thinking about it and it was really a slow realization. I've talked a, a bit about how I was kind of um, not from a private lesson background for me. I was in high school in band and it was pretty much just for fun and I didn't have any sort of training and I kind of just derped my way through it for <laughs> lack of a better <laughs> word. <laughs> I still wanted to do like solo and ensemble contests and stuff, but I just didn't really take it seriously. I think back and I was the kind of student who probably really frustrated people. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I do remember I was in my freshman year of my undergrad and I was walking somewhere to campus and campus was really empty. And I remember going, yes, you know, like every performance pretty much has some element of like crash and burn. And that was kind of normal because I didn't really practice. I just kind of put myself in these performing situations because I liked being involved and I liked being active. And I was like, but not everyone does that. Like professionals, they get to a place where that doesn't happen. So it must not be inevitable. So how does that happen? I want to do that. And Mm -hmm. not necessarily mean like I want to be a professional at that point, but just the realization that if I put the work in, I could have the type of performances that I admired and that it wasn't a, oh, those people are like touched by the hand of God and that's why they sound good when they perform. But Eureka, they put in the hard work. And Mm -hmm. so by that math equation, if I put in the hard work, I could give a performance that I was prepared for and was executed at a level of my preparation. And in my mind at that time, I used the word perfect. And now I would say representative of my level of preparation. But Mm -hmm. that was embarrassingly kind of a revelation for me at the time. And then as that thought came true, then I was like, oh, this feels good. This is, uh, you know, rewarding. This adds to my concept of self and my self-esteem and my accomplishment. And even watching myself go from that apathetic non-musician to someone who really cared, it was like, I want this feeling to last forever. So I think that's kind of how I stumbled upon that. That's so beautiful, Jackie. It kind of is. I feel like I made it sound well 
it's essentially, I was a slacker. And then at one point I decided, what if I wasn't a slacker? <laughs> what if I wasn't a total embarrassment to myself, my teachers and my institution? Hmm. How would that go? Would I feel better? So. <laughs> oh, so my coming to it was similar. <laughs> So I took lessons when I was in high school and this woman deserves so many blessings for her patience and her compassion. <laughs> Huge shout out to Marilyn Krenzman, who plays English horn with the Hartford Symphony Orchestra for putting up with me and my slackery tendencies when I was in high school. But she would tell me all the time, you know, you could be good at this, but you're doing too many other things. Mm. And I never listened to her until uh, she suggested that I look into this music festival, uh, summer festival, the Luzerne Music Center in upstate New York. Mm -hmm. And I went the summer before my senior year of high school and we learned one movement it was four weeks and we learned one movement a week of Tchaikovsky's Patetique Symphony. And I just fell in love. It was like going there and just hearing all of my peers who sounded incredible. There were a lot of uh, students there from the metropolitan Philadelphia area who were taking lessons with really incredible people. And I was just like, wow, this level is very high. <laughs> And then there I am immersed in the Patetique Symphony. And I just thought, oh, this is it. This is what I want. If I can do this, then I'm, I'm good. So then I practiced my booty off. I actually won the superlative that summer for best practicer at camp. Okay. <laughs> Brush my shoulders off. <laughs> but I remember talking to my oboe teacher there at the camp and I said, do you think I can do this? And he said, yeah. And then I said, okay. So then I went home to Mrs. Krenzman and I said, I want to do this. And she was like, okay, dummy, let's get going. <laughs> so then I quit my other activities that had been taking up all of my time and I practiced so much. I practiced before school. I practiced after school. I just, I did a lot of catch up work and I think it was that feeling of I'm behind, I'm behind, I'm behind, I'm behind that has fueled me throughout, you know, most of my career as a student. And actually part of my career as a professional is that feeling of you are behind, you need to catch up right. has been a driving force for a lot of my progress. And actually it was really validating reading the talent code because Daniel Coyle talks about that. Mm -hmm. That feeling of I'm behind, I have to catch up, really feeling the fire for people to, you know, put in the work and get it done. And uh, yeah, so a part of the struggle actually has been to get over that feeling of I'm behind and settle into I'm okay. You know right. what I mean? But it's, but I'm, I'm getting there and it's been, it's been a really great journey for me personally. Oh, yeah. And it's such a hard balance, right? Between we talk about wanting to practice self-care and work-life balance. And that's something that we really advocate for on this podcast. And that's really important. But the flip side of that coin is what we do and achieving excellence in what we do requires sacrifice. Totally. 
I have characteristics of a scholar identity that I have on my cork board that I refer to a lot that I got at a seminar that I went to that I've never forgotten. And one of them is the need for achievement versus the need for affiliation. Mm. And those moments when, you know, all my friends would be going to the student union, Jackie, come have a smoothie or whatever. And I knew I needed to practice and said, I'll have to catch up with you later. I have to practice. Or like you said, going in before school or staying after school. And it does take dedication and it does take sacrifice of some of, you know, you have to put time into it. I'll tell you, my brothers can still sing the exposition of the Mozart concerto. I was practicing while they were trying to sleep. <laughs> so he did a call for other people's stories of when they realized they wanted to be a musician. Mm-hmm. And I would love to start with Masons, who says, I realized I wanted to become a musician in the fifth grade when my band director started playing the Pink Panther. It was the day she was showing us the different instruments for us to play, and I didn't think I wanted to join the music department. And then she played the Pink Panther on the alto sax, and I was like, I want to play that. Oh, Mason, you poor misguided former (laughs) manifestation of self. (laughs) Two years later, at a different school, my new band director thought I was pretty good and said, quote, try this bundle of sticks now, unquote. (laughs) A few years later, I'm starting college next year as a bassoon performance major. Mason, I'm so glad life saved you from that (laughs) terrible, terrible path. We got another submission from Fernando, who said the feeling of being in the middle of an orchestra and being able to tell a story only with the sound of the oboe is what got him into music professionally. Same, Fernando, same. As a bassoonist, I love the bassoon, but I do have to admit there's just something about a beautiful oboe solo singing out in the context of an orchestra that's like, oh yeah, this is nice. It's like for... (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) Okay, girl, settle down. (laughs) Kristen says, I was a little girl and I spent most of my time with my dad in his band room. I got to witness everything behind the scenes. I would see how music can bring so much joy to people, how it can be an outlet for others, but more importantly, bring people closer and build lifelong friendships and relationships. I saw how much positivity music had and I knew I never wanted to leave. Excuse me while I go cry in the corner. That is the most beautiful thing I've ever read. And it's important to keep in mind as well. Definitely. Our last submission is from Christy Selkeen, who wrote, I fully intended to be a writer and planned to major in journalism. I worked for our local newspaper over spring break my junior year, and I was so bored. Meanwhile, I had just started taking oboe lessons with a student at Oberlin Conservatory. Then I started getting into underbands. Then I got principal oboe in the youth orchestra. Then colleges started recruiting me, and I realized how much I loved it. There's still plenty of time for me to be a writer, but I'm so happy that I chose this life. Booyah. Booyah. Mic drop. (laughs) Uh, We all come to this in such different ways. I love it. And sometimes when it's frustrating, it's it's nice to go back and think, why did I want to do this in the first place? And then you're like, oh, because it's perfect and I wouldn't want to do anything else. 
Don't you hate feeling bored with all the music on your stand? Well, luckily, you never have to feel that way again. JDW Sheet Music offers a wide variety of chamber music pieces for wind players of all ages. Their catalog includes duets, trios, quintets, and even double reed choir pieces for beginner, intermediate, and advanced players. Each of the pieces on the site will include sample pages, audio excerpts, and short descriptions. JDW Sheet Music has also made it possible to access the music sooner through the new digital download-only feature. Pieces that are marked digital download only will be made available immediately after purchase. To learn more about JDW Sheet Music, please visit www.jdwsheetmusic.com. So we all know that Genda Industries is known for their reed knives, sharpening, and overall amazing quality in the double reed world. But there is so much more going on at Genda Industries. Did you know that you can get oboe and bassoon reeds from Genda Industries at the Artisan Mall? The Genda Industries Artisan Mall, it's like a farmer's market, and it's filled with talented local and regional reed makers selling their own reeds. It's a great way to try out some new reeds from new makers, and who knows, one day maybe your reeds will be for sale. Add the code DRDGENDA, that's all capitals, no spaces, at checkout, and get 10% off any Genda reed knife, maintenance kit, reed knife sharpening book, cutting block, and reed tool row. Visit them at GendaIndustries.com. Oh, and they're much more than just reed knives. We are delighted to welcome to the podcast Sarah Roper, solo oboe of the Real Orquesta Sinfonica de Sevilla. Welcome, Sarah. Oh, thank you very much. It's an absolute pleasure to be with you. Let's start by talking about how you came to play the oboe. Well, I played the recorder from quite an early age. I think I was about five or six. Well, I played the piano before that, um, around the same time, piano and recorder. And um, I think uh, I already knew I liked blowing an instrument. It was I, I, I knew straight away anyway that I wanted to do something with music at that, at that age. And um, I, when I was about eight or nine, I was playing in a very local small youth orchestra and, um, and uh, they didn't have any oboes. So I was playing the, the oboe part on the recorder. <laughs> so we were playing like Beethoven symphony, or the first bit, um, symphony of Beethoven. And I was playing all the solos with the, with the recorder. And they kept on saying to me, when are you going to get an oboe? And, um, and it's sort of just, became a natural process in a way because um uh they needed an oboist in in that orchestra and then also I found out that it was really difficult to play uh from what we say oh because I oh, what's it like it's always very difficult to play and I just thought oh yeah that's brilliant that's for me <laughs> I, 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 I always like to do uh I think um just probably my character I, I like doing things which are a challenge and um and it just, yeah, it just sort of happened like that. And then a family friend of ours, an uncle had an oboe, so I was able to try it. And um, it just went on from there, really. I could play it straight away, made a sound, and that, that was it, really. I loved it. So I knew straight away that's, that's what I wanted to do, really, from the age of 10. That I, It was very clear in my mind I wanted to be an oboist. And um, it was 
I think I'm very lucky in that sense that I, I don't think there's many people at that age uh, can have such a, a focused uh, outlook on what, on what they want to do in the future. But um, I, I know with uh, between uh, I have two sisters and, and um, uh, I think they, they, they found it a bit strange that I knew exactly what I wanted to do at that age. Um, yeah, so that's how I came to play the oboe, really. What did that focus look like at such a young age? How did it manifest itself in your practice habits and whatnot? I think I just fell in love with the sound and I knew that I wanted to make music that way with with that sound. Um, I was very lucky to start with um, an oboe teacher who was an oboist. Um, in Britain, there are a lot of wind teachers that... Um, teach a lot of wind instruments uh, in schools. In, in my time, when, when I was at, at school, that, that's how it was. Um, so you would often maybe start playing the oboe with a flute teacher or a clarinetist. So, but um, I was very lucky to actually, my, uh, my first teacher was actually a, um, a professional oboist, uh, my, um, Peter Bassett, um, who had played in orchestras in Scotland. And um, he was... I, th- I think obviously he found it, uh, he enjoyed having a, a student that really enjoyed playing the oboe and, and likewise I was really inspired by him and um, we played a lot together, we did a lot of duets, um, one of the first things that he gave me to play was um, the solo of Swan Lake um, and it, it, he he had a way of showing me what what you can do with the oboe, the, the beautiful things. And it never seemed like it was um, a hard uh, thing. I mean, I, I knew that there were reeds and everything else, but um, um, the, yeah, it was a very positive feeling I had the whole time. I, I think obviously having played the recorder beforehand, that that made it much easier because I knew most of the notes, the fingerings. Um, so I, I, was able to play lots of tunes straight away. <laughs> Can you talk us through your um, training and educational journey? Yeah, so I had private lessons with um, with Peter Bassett, and then when I was thirteen, I won a place at Cheatham's School of Music, which is a specialist music school for for children until they're eighteen. Um, that's in Manchester. So I went there and I boarded there because uh, my family lived, well, my parents still live there in Gloucestershire. Um, so it was a case of boarding there and going home every three three weekends. So I went there until I was 18. Then I went to the Royal Academy, studied with uh, George Caird and Celia Nicklin. Um and then after that, with a German government scholarship, I studied with um, Thomas Sindemüller in Karlsruhe in the Musikhochschule. There I did a um, postgraduate course for two years. And um, during that whole time, really, um, right from the age of 13, um, well, in Manchester, it was very intense, intensive time. Um, also in, in London and Germany. Uh, I did a lot of um, summer courses, masterclasses with different people. Um, yeah, so I didn't just 
Um, I mean, I would say, obviously, they were the key teachers that I had, but um, I learned a lot from other people as well. Can you tell us about what it was like studying in England and then studying in Germany? Um, as Americans, we don't have um, so much access to, you know, the, the different styles that are available yeah. throughout the world. So how was that different? Um, for me, it was perfect it was just right for me because uh in britain um the training is very much focused on orchestral playing uh in london i just played absolutely loads lots of chamber music uh, lots of orchestral music um uh we we went through all the orchestral solos all the repertoire um every year we had exams on on things like that obviously everything else but um there was very much a lot of focus on um orchestral work because the idea was that you you were to become an orchestral you are to become an orchestral uh, professional orchestral musician which is probably the most realistic um uh, goal if you want to play um rather than becoming a soloist i mean obviously also they they trained us to become teachers as well but um I was very much playing a lot and traveling in the underground and that was about it. I didn't, I mean, I did practice, but it was not, <laughs> not the same as when I went to Germany. So when I arrived in Germany, it was just uh, like paradise in a way, because suddenly I had every day, I just woke up and all I had to do was practice the oboe and it was just amazing. Um, because uh, the course that I had there in in, um, in Karlsruhe was because it was uh, the postgraduate course. Um, I didn't have to do analysis or theory hardly at all. It was just basically concentrate on the oboe, which was mm. brilliant. Um, and uh, the then the transport, of course, I, I went everywhere by bike. Um, it was much more relaxed. I suddenly had money because I had a a scholarship to. <laughs> I could go out for a coffee, which was really nice. (laughs) London was really exciting, but hard financially. So, um, you know, there's a lot of advantages of going to a big city like that, but um, it's, it's not easy if, uh, you know, you're paying rent and everything and uh, it's not cheap. And so, of course, when I arrived in, in Germany in Karlsruhe, a small town where, um i the the rent was cheaper and uh i didn't have to pay for underground that was great and though that the lifestyle was very different um and also in in my class in um in culture we were there were a lot of foreigners it was a very international class within Demula. um and we all sort of like looked after each other it was a bit like a a big over oboe family um and we, yeah, we would, there were, I think, I seem to remember there was about six of us um, doing the same course as me. We we just spent a lot of time practicing, stopping having a coffee, then going back, practicing again. And, and, and during this time, um, I focused a lot more on solo work, uh, uh, concertos, uh yeah, more more um, repertoire for recitals and things like that. So that was great for me, and and I found um, uh, Thomas was was fantastic in the way he just lets us all just um, develop each one individually in our own 
our own way because uh, we were a lot of, there was a french canadian australian uh there were some germans as well uh, japanese korean me uh, <laughs> and so it was a lot of different sounds different schools of playing um and that was interesting as well to learn from each other in that way could you talk to us about embarking on your professional journey and how you got to where you are today when I was in London I did gigs did freelancing and the same in in um in Germany as well uh after I finished studying at, at the Hochschule I uh did some freelance work and I started to teach as well um but uh obviously what I was really looking for was a I needed a, a proper full-time job um I did as many auditions as I could <laughs> like uh, most of us and uh I it just sort of everything just happened without me really trying in a way um I was fortunate to be asked to go and play in an orchestra in Granada in Spain um so I went uh, this was a, a contract to go and just play for a bit so I did that um then I went back to Karlsruhe then I was given another contract um, to play in a modern music group in Vienna uh and then again the orchestra in Granada phoned me back they said could you come and play so I did that and then this particular job actually came up so I did the audition and that was for second oboe with uh Coronglay in in the Orchestra Theatre de Granada and I won that job and I and uh and I just thought well I'll take it but I I never ever thought I was going to stay in Spain I just thought oh I'll do that now and then I'll go back to Germany or I'll go back to London or whatever um but first of all <laughs> just because I just I I originally just thought I cannot live here they're just so relaxed <laughs> I, I, I could not cope with the siesta which just driving me crazy because uh, you know everything finishes at two and then and then the orchestra rehearsal didn't start till five and I was just like what am I going to do for supposed to go and sleep <laughs> uh, you know uh, that that I found really difficult at the beginning but um actually surprisingly enough it didn't take me too long to I suppose I never really got used to it but um there were things that I just thought I, I'm not going to stay in Spain but um anyway I I stayed in that orchestra for a year because um the job in Seville came up the first Obo job came up and um <clears throat> I I auditioned for it and uh, originally it was to uh it was like um a temporary contract to fill in for somebody uh for three years and that person didn't come back so then there was another audition for the actual job and then I won that and um ended up staying because by that time I'd met my future husband and um obviously that changed a lot of things um changed my decision on whether I would stay in Spain or not um yeah my husband plays a double bass in the same orchestra and uh that sort of it just was like a natural process in a way just uh stay in Seville I, was, I really enjoy it it's a good orchestra fantastic colleagues I've been here since 96 so in Seville 22 years because in the middle about 10 years ago um I went to New Zealand for a year well all, all three of us my, my daughter and my husband and, and me we, we went because I uh 
won a job in um, Auckland, the Auckland Philharmonia, uh, because, well, we just decided we wanted to have a change, basically, and we just thought, well, why don't we go for something different, and that job came up, so um, we took, uh, here, the conditions are fantastic, I can have up to three years leave, and still come back to the same job, um, so we decided we're gonna we're gonna do that take take that job on and and see how it goes so we went there um had a fantastic time um but by the end of the year we realized that that was not the right thing and uh came back to came back to Seville um but that was great because it made us realize um you, you when you go away from somewhere you appreciate other things um and that's that that was a very positive also coming back because uh it's sort of made a a quite a dramatic change in a way in the way i i decided to carry on doing things uh, because when we went to new zealand we basically emptied the house we sold our cars we did because we didn't know whether we were going to come back or not so <laughs> we left everything just in case we didn't come back. Um, so when we did come back, uh, it was like starting with a clean slate and just doing something different, you know, <clears throat> although we were still in the same orchestra. So you spoke about how you have served these different roles in the orchestra, English horn, second oboe, um, solo oboe or principal, as we would call it. And I'm curious how you were able to develop and cultivate the skills that would allow you to be flexible in those various positions as opportunities arose and what advice you would have for other oboists and instrumentalists in terms of flexibility between the roles that we play in the orchestra? For me, you know, I, I, I started to work in Granada. I was playing second there. I was 25. I just finished studying and I was still well, I, th- I think now I would be as well. The thing is, when you, when you get to a certain, t- a certain age, you know it's not that easy to to go for another job somewhere else and uh, change. But then, for me, it was totally normal to carry carry on studying. And re- I really wanted to play first oboe. So, um, for me, there was n- uh, no doubt that I I, I could change. I, d- I didn't see any any obstacle uh, with that at all I mean I understand of course playing second oboe and core is quite a different role in the orchestra um and I learned a lot from that and also I think um it's really helped it helped me to understand when you're playing first oboe what the second oboe and the corongle is going through because um uh, I think actually in a way it's much easier to play first um when when you're a solo oboe or solo a leader of a section, um, obviously you've got your responsibility and you have to be there and have everything in place and um, you need certain qualities of being able to um, play as a soloist. But um, the second oboe part is often super difficult because they have to always... Um, they have to follow what the first player plays does and um, they have to... If the second oboe doesn't um, play well, 
the first oboe can sound awful. I mean, you, you when you're playing in octaves or something, or you know, you've got a solo accompanied by the second oboe, you you absolutely need a good stable second oboe that's just there. Um, almost like a shadow with you so and sometimes they have to come out as well um yeah so in that sense obviously it's, it's a different different role um but I, I don't see any reason why somebody can't do can't change uh jobs uh if they're flexible enough as a as a person and as a as a instrumentalist it should be possible you seem to be a person who is open to the unexpected opportunity and to the adventure that presents itself in the moment. You didn't expect to stay in Spain and you stayed in Spain mm. and you went to New Zealand for a year. And mm. um, I think that can sometimes be difficult for people to do, to say, well, I had pictured my life one way. <clears throat> yeah. And now my life is going the other way or a different way. And not that that way is bad, but sometimes it's hard to let go of that previous vision Mm. of what the life was quote unquote supposed to be. Um, Was that ever um, something that you had to think about or deal with? And if it was, what advice do you have for people who are going through that? Yeah, I did actually in a way, um, uh, but I think I realized quite early on when I was studying, especially when I was studying in Germany, that I, I could end up anywhere in a way. Uh, I think when I was younger, um, possibly before I left London, I had quite a sort of a set view about how how I should end up, where I should end up playing. And uh, first of all, I wanted to study at the Paris Conservatoire. And then <laughs> later I was thinking, oh, I want to be working in London. But then when I went to Germany, I saw, I met a lot of foreigners, a lot of different people. And I saw how life could be different as well. Obviously then also speaking a different language, diff- learning a different culture. Um, it, I think I realized that obviously I, I also saw that I've got to, it doesn't matter where I end up. I've got to make a living. I have to uh, right. somehow get a job somewhere. <laughs> you know, you, you can't choose. Uh, and then, well, you, maybe you can sometimes, but uh, I think I realized quite early on, especially when I ended up in Granada, that I just had to go with the flow totally because it, it, it was never planned any of it. Um, I think the only thing that was really planned were the places that I went to study. Um, but after that, you, you you never know who you're going to meet, who you're going to play with, who's going to listen to you and then offer you work. Um, and I mean, I think I would say I probably read quite a lot of books and uh, thought a lot about things like that um about life and uh how you can't control you you really you cannot control your destiny um mm-hmm. uh, and uh, i think especially with a profession like ours uh you we have to realize if uh, if if uh the oboe or, or music is your passion uh you you have to in order to follow your dream you need to really you do need to just 
um, let opportunities come to you and, and, and take them when, when the door is opened, go for it. And, and then if you realize it's not the right thing, then you can always go back and try something else. But, um, yeah, I, I definitely, um, feel that, that it's impossible to control most of all. hard. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard for oboists to not have control. <laughs> But uh, that philosophy, in a way, helps you just with the the whole thing about reads. I mean, if we are able to relax and just think, I mean, obviously you have to make reads and make sure you've always got good reads. But um, sometimes they're not how we don't want them, how we want them to be. So uh, there's nothing you can do about it. You just do the best you can on the day with what you've got. You know. that's one that, that that's something you can't control that suddenly the the cane might go all soggy or or, <laughs> or you suddenly have water in your in your oboe um yeah there's many things that that you can't control in a performance for example yeah radical acceptance i love it yeah <laughs> <laughs> definitely so we've spoken about the international scope of your career and that's very evident mm. in your involvement with the Spanish Double Read Society, you're the president, you're also the first vice president of IDRS. And I'd love to hear just a little bit about your involvement and enthusiasm for these organizations and your approach and why it's important to you to do this international community building in our field. Yeah, well, this all boils down to what happened to me when I started to play the oboe when I was younger, when I was a teenager. Um, Quite early on, probably when I was about 11 or 12, actually before I was a teenager, um, in Gloucestershire, where my parents live, um, there were some double read days, just once a year, and we went to... A house and played uh, it w- wasn't it, it, w- it was very early on we're talking like um well more than 35 years ago um and I think it was the beginnings of the British Double Read Society so um the, it wasn't I wasn't really aware of um what was happening with Double Read Societies but what I did find at that age for me that opportunity to be uh with other students that I had never met before or um teachers uh uh, professionals that um played with me like we do chamber music or we do double read bands or something that was just so inspiring and um really really helped me to I think if if somebody wants to play an instrument and they have that type of experience and they're inspired it it can it can just like it could be just that that would make them want to absolutely go for it for have that dream um on the other hand you could also think oh god i want to do this <laughs> but um, in my case it, it really really um inspired me when i when i was beginning when i just started to play the oboe so when uh i always i always thought about starting a society in spain um ever since I've been here because there wasn't one. Um, the Spanish Double Read Society exists um, since 2011 only. Um, and 
when I came back from New Zealand, uh, that was one of the things that um, I decided when I came back, I just thought, right, if we're coming back to Spain, uh, I want to do something that I always wanted to do. And so speaking to other teachers and um, other professional oboists and bassoons in Seville, we decided to uh, found the Seville Double Reed Society. So we did that. And then a year later, uh, speaking with Masmano and the other uh, other friends who eventually became part of the the directive board of AFOES, of the Spanish Double Reed Society, uh, a year later, then um, the Spanish Double Reed Society started. Um, and really, it just all... Uh, from then on is just so many things have happened here uh, in the sense of uh, the double read world um, we, because we've been able to because the, this association exists and these societies exist we're able to organize master classes and um, get togethers which before never existed there are so many double read players here in Spain but um, still there's a lot more to do for us to become come more, more together. But before it was, everybody was just sort of, uh, there was not any real contact. We weren't really, there was no sort of um, unified, uh, how do you say it, a group. So this has just been so uh, positive, really, I think, for for Spain in, in general. And, and there's some great people that... Um, want to contribute to to the society and and then of course with IDRS that all happened I ended up getting involved with the IDRS board because uh AFOES the Spanish Degree Society we proposed to host the conference in Granada which happened last year and we proposed to do that about five years ago and because of that I ended up speaking quite a lot with with the IDRS board, and uh, of course, I think it was a massive uh, advantage having this contact of somebody who can speak English and Spanish. And um, f- for us, for for Afoes, it, it was it was very useful um, to be uh, to be able to understand above all the the uh, mentality because IDRS. I would say is is originally, um, although it's called international now, it's much more international than it was. But um, mm-hmm. even so, the mentality on on the board then, uh, maybe not so much now because uh, different people have come on, but, um, it was quite American, and it, it's a different way of thinking. The same way as any any country, <laughs> every every culture is different, and so that was very handy. And I think. Um, well, because of that, I ended up being asked to be second vice president, which is normally somebody on the board who represents a different country. And and from there, I ended up staying and <laughs> ended up being appointed as first vice president. Yeah, so it's all... <laughs> none of it was actually uh sought after at all it <laughs> just sort of like the same way as everything else just sort of came came along really um yeah and I, I as I said before I think uh I think 
these associations some people I think my colleagues in the orchestra some of them think I'm absolutely I think I'm a real geek I think I'm totally <laughs> freaky um, it's just like <laughs> I mean I love playing the oboe but I think of course now recently with everything that's happening with the societies I, I do spend a lot of time on the computer and uh, sending lots of emails and doing things and um uh I, I think that I think they think I'm a bit crazy, a bit mad, but uh, <laughs> uh, but I, I I really see I I just find it so exciting when when something is organised and you see it all coming together and and for example when when we hosted the conference last year it was just so such good fun um, being with so many people and uh, and and, and uh, above all seeing uh, here in Seville. Uh, 11 year old kids you see their their faces totally lit up they're just like in awe of uh being able to, standing next to somebody else who's maybe 30 years older being able to play really fast and a lovely tone and then you can you that that's just um simple pure inspiration really for for them mm-hmm. so with all of these added administrative and organizational responsibilities how do you maintain your practice schedule and how do you stay at the top of your form um, while you're expanding all of these different aspects of your career yeah well I'm very lucky my husband cooks really well yes (laughs) (laughs) and he loves it so that is a massive plus because uh you know, having help at home, that really helps. Um, but organizing my time, um, I find I, I just have to make sure it's basically, uh, the same. I would, I would say since I, I, we, we, I had a, my daughter's 15. So once I, had a baby I suddenly realized uh, first of all before I had the baby her her I just thought oh I just know I don't know how I'm going to be able to practice the oboe how am I going to make reads this is going to be impossible but you just find a way um uh you know she would just be lying on the floor and I would play for 10 minutes or or whatever you just find a way and now uh this the same thing having um three or four things going on at the same time um I just try and get my priorities right and then with practice I don't try and practice for a whole hour a whole hour and a half now I will do I, I will set a goal of do 45 minutes make sure I do um some technique um and something musical and have a break do something else uh, then go back do another forty five minutes so i'm uh, it 's short concentrated time but i I find for me that that works much better because uh i don 't get tired um, uh, brain wise um, uh, and then of course the same with, with uh, reads I make sure that i 've always got um so three or four blanks ready three or four that are half scraped and three or four that are on their way to being played just always having everything sort of going on all at the same time and thank you so much for talking about um 
motherhood and time management. I was recently at the Meg Quigley Vivaldi Bassoon Competition and Symposium, and the founder and artistic director, Nick Custer, was talking about how when she was coming up, there were so few images of professional musicians who were also mothers and the Mm. implied need to choose or the implied... um, mutual exclusiveness of those things. And so I think it's so important, you know, that we as women professionals talk about the multifaceted aspects of our life. I think that's a really important example to set. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, uh, well, everybody would say when you have a child, it changes your life um, in so many ways. There's so many positive aspects. Uh, and and I would say for playing as well, for me, uh, it I was so worried before that I wouldn't have enough time to do all my things. And, uh, but actually in the end, you find more time than you thought you had before because, because you are forced to prioritize and, 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 you know, you don't have the whole day anymore. So you have to make sure you do things, you use it more concisely, the time. Um, And also what I found um, is my, my, how do you say my perspective uh, over life changed i i became a lot more relaxed because um <laughs> I, I, you know I, I we would get up in the morning uh, when when she was smaller get everything ready and, uh, and by the time i got to work I was just so relieved i got to work it was just like oh i'm on holiday now and so uh, <laughs> play play a, a, a big solo don juan or whatever it was just like oh this is just amazing i'm loving this and you, you know i actually think you you're not so stressed about it because uh, actually um changing a baby's nappy beforehand was <laughs> much more stressful than uh, than uh, getting the oboe out I think yeah there's there's different ways of looking at it definitely as you look over the course of your career do you have some favorite memories of past performances that you can share with us it, the thing is every week is different and uh we here we do symphonic uh concerts um opera we do sarthuela we do ballet and that's great because it, it's always so different and um i would say most weeks are so memorable but in the sense that um they they are special and 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 uh, a different conductor often uh, yeah different repertoire and um it'd be really hard to to pick one but i would say probably if i had to talk about an experience that left an impact on me it would be when I was younger um when I played a Brahms symphony I would do in about 15 and and I remember this this feeling of absolutely loving the whole experience and um just knowing that that was exactly what I wanted to do in in the future um and then I would say uh well, recently, two years ago, I played the Vaughan Williams Concerto with my orchestra in Seville. And that was very special for me because it was with my colleagues accompanying that. That was lovely to do something like that. Um, I can tell you about something, a bit of a strange experience. <laughs> Please do. Yeah. Uh, this was just last year. Is just, I mean, we all have funny funny experiences in performances sometimes um 
but this was just incredible. Um, my in in the oboe section, we're four oboists. We are two British women, so me and another girl called Sarah. She plays the Coronglay, and uh, the second oboe is from Valencia, and the other first oboe is from Valencia. So um, we all, um, about twenty years ago, got the same reed case. And it's a really beautiful recase uh, with like a humidifier in the middle and uh, they're all black and uh, yeah, and they, none of them have fallen apart yet. So um, we were doing Beethoven 3 and uh, Beethoven 3 was in the second half and in the break, uh, we were just about about 10 minutes warming up to go on. I went to get my reeds and I couldn't find my reed case. And uh, we suddenly realized that Sarah had, well, I, I thought she must have taken my reed case because I couldn't think of anything else. First of all, I thought maybe it had fallen down a, a hole in the theater. So we were like desperately, because um, behind the stage, there are, <laughs> unfortunately, there's a couple of holes where things, if you, I've lost a few things down there, like um, plaques and things that um, you they're just lost forever if you oh, no. yeah they're just like down the bottom <laughs> bottom of the pit somewhere even below is just like this this big hole and I just thought oh no has it gone down there or um and then I thought well maybe Sarah took my my read case by mistake and um but hers wasn't there so uh she'd already gone but luckily uh, it looked like she was still in the theatre, but meanwhile, I, I basically had to take a, um, a read off the second oboe, and uh, just oh, just give me one. Just you just gave me one. <laughs> just like quickly tried it out. Okay, that gives a good A. Oh, it's sort of like in tune. I was just thinking, oh my god, this is incredible. But I just thought, <laughs> I just have to do it. Okay, you know, they, they were the people behind say, well, should we wait? And I said, well, what are we going to do? Let, let's just go and do it. So we went on the stage. I started to give the A and um, uh, I was just thinking already, this is going to be a bit of a nightmare. But anyway, as I'd given the A, meanwhile, Sarah had been called and she luckily was still in the theatre, ran back and realised what had happened, gave the read case to uh, somebody that who came onto the stage <laughs> And um, gave me the the reed case um, <laughs> before the conductor came on. So the conductor came on, and I managed to get this reed out quickly and swap it over. Anyway, so we we, we played Beethoven three um, with I had my I was playing on my the reeds that I from my reed case. Um, and uh, afterwards, the whole wind section they knew what had happened. They said to me. Bravo, that was fantastic. Oh, God, that's really good. They thought that I played on the second oboe's read. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, and it, it was so fun that the whole thing was just, uh, was just like surreal, really. <laughs> because it was a matter of seconds that this guy came in dressed in black, sort of like popped his head <laughs> underneath the music stand and gave me, gave me this. Wow. <laughs> got the read out quickly and then and then we just then we just started and uh yeah he was the real mvp (laughs) yeah 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 (laughs) that was that was definitely a memorable um experience yeah oh i felt very stressed listening to the story (laughs) (laughs) 
oh, it had a happy ending. It was yeah, but you know, when things like that happen, is uh, I find it. I really am quite surprised how I react because I just go into this sort of like uh, peaceful. Um, peaceful uh, state. I was just, I, I wasn't really like uh, panicking or anything. I thought afterwards, oh, God, um, I would have done it. It'd be, and that's the thing you think. Uh, we don't think that we're ca- capable of doing something like that or, you know, just going on stage playing on a totally different read, uh, Beethoven 3 or, or whatever. But but when you're put in that situation, you you have to. <laughs> so you, you just don't, don't think. You have to just react. I just love the symbolism of it being a funeral march. That would... <laughs> it nearly was. <laughs> so you hear students all over the world. Uh, you teach, you give master classes. Hmm. What are some of the, your favorite uh, traits that you hear in young musicians? And what are the things that you get most excited about when you hear in these teaching situations? I think what really catches my ear now is when somebody is really trying to make music, Um, not just trying to play the right notes and to make a nice sound. Because there are a lot of people now, especially in Europe, well, well let, let's say Spain, my, I would say, for example, yesterday I was giving lessons and it, it, it's um, this vision of making a um, lovely round, uh, dark sound, which is great. But then what happens is often um, people get... Um, distracted by by just trying to um create a good sound and not and not actually making music with it so uh a lot of students end up having maybe slightly too thick reeds just because they want this sound and then what happens is they can't uh produce different colors and um then it's not so flexible it's not so easy to to be able to experiment with different contrasts in 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 the in the sound and when a student does that and is not so worried about making this sort of standard uh dark round sound that they're that they think that they should be making and they're just thinking about the music and just uh the rhythm is there and they're feeling it that that's what I like to hear. And and then, and I really like people who've got spirit as well as, as, a, as, as a person, as, as they are, as people normally that will come out as, as a musician as well. Um, uh, yeah, I, I like, I like meeting students that are passionate about what they're doing that you know sometimes they might have technical problems um that you but no, normally if they if they've got that passion and that dream to to do things with with, with the with the oboe or or with music then i i feel that they they're going to get somewhere that's beautiful what advice do you have for a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours 
I would say I, I got where I got because I worked a lot. I studied a lot. Um, I'm quite, I, w- I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm a workaholic, but um, uh, I, I think uh, you do need to be quite ambitious and you do need to set your goals and uh, know exactly what you really want to do and, and work for it. If not, there's somebody else will get there before you um, in the sense of uh, winning a job or, or something. Um, but then I would say um, the type of uh, job I have, I'm very lucky to have, I, I actually share this uh, solo over job. So there's two of us. Um, I'm very lucky to have that because uh I can choose a bit um, when I play in the orchestra and so then I have time to do other things. Um, and that means that I can play music, uh, chamber music, I can do solo work and teach. Um, of course, that comes with the job, really. Um, yeah, and then I think you, you do need to be uh, quite um, open-minded, really and open to any opportunity that comes because uh, certainly in, in Britain and, and uh, the rest of Europe, um, it's really important um, the contacts you make and uh, the, you, know, you just don't, don't know what it's going to lead on to uh, freelance work or, or and, and also um, I would say above all, um, it's really important how you are as a person um, because when I don't know how it is in America, but um, for example, in, in my job in Spain and also uh, in Britain, it's, it's definitely like that. Um, there's always a time where you're being tried out uh, uh, at least a year or two or three years um, in Spain. It was uh, my, in my case, it was at least two years. Um, and it, if you obviously you have to play well you have to be a good a good player a good musician but if you personally don't get on with your colleagues um it's not gonna it's not going to work you have to you have to the the chemistry needs to be right so i mean obviously there's a place for everyone anywhere um but uh it it helps if you if you can be a stable uh, easygoing, get, somebody that's easy to get on with, I think, especially in, a, in an orchestra, because there are so many, there can be <laughs> far too many egos. Uh, and uh, the last thing that an orchestra wants is another ego that's going to get in the way, you know. <laughs> I would say, you know, when we when we try out new people or if uh, somebody comes to play that that for me apart from how they play is is really important um because you have to be able to get on with the person and be know that you can say to them oh can we just go through that bit again or do you think we should play a bit flatter here or you know just odd comments if if somebody takes that too personally then it's it's just not going to work um so I, i try to say that to my students as well and that that was a piece of advice I I was given quite early on in in London I because in London um freelance work there's a lot of freelance work and uh it's it's really 
uh, a lot of it's to do do with that who you know obviously how you play as well but uh, you you can't go somewhere and and uh, be a bit cocky because <laughs> it's not going to work mm-hmm. yeah yeah what uh, exciting things do you have coming up that you'd like to tell us about um at the moment there's a lot of orchestral work uh, we've got the alpine symphony starting tomorrow um we've got don juan in a couple of weeks time uh the traviata um verdi's traviata opera there's quite a few big big works coming up we're doing a german tour as well um and uh for me outside the orchestra um i'm still working with the the oboe quartet i have with strings and oboe uh with sort of working on new programs now and um i have a couple of premieres happening this this year um i'm working with a composer called um luke styles an australian composer he's composing a oboe concerto for um seem to remember it's 13 music is a small group small group of musicians and um that's going to that's like a it's a project um shared between a modern music group called arco in australia and a modern music group in seville called uh, taller sonoro um so i've been in contact with luke i, I saw him before christmas and we're, we're working on that that's really exciting working with a composer um on a a new work like that i'm i'm absolutely loving it because he's sending me every now and again uh pieces of the music and i'm playing it and uh and sending comments and i'm finding that really interesting and uh, another piece that i will premiere um in spain well i'm not sure it'll be in spain or somewhere else um called silentum amoris by jesus torres He's a Spanish composer, um, and I played his oboe quartet. We played his oboe quartet a couple of years ago. Absolutely fantastic uh, piece. There is no recording of it yet, but maybe I, I would like to record it. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see if that happens. He's also written a, a trio for oboe, cello, and piano. Yes, yeah, so there's a couple of projects with with new music, really. Um, and to be honest, last year was uh, with the IDOS conference. That was it. Took so much time out out of us that um, I didn't have much time to think about anything else afterwards. <laughs> and and since that's finished, it's a bit like, oh, okay, got to start again now. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it literally took, I would say, nearly two years. At least a year of my spare time out, 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 yeah. So normally, you know, when uh, when I have free time, I would be thinking on promoting uh, my groups or anything else I could do for myself. But um, last year, that was more on uh, the, based on hosting a <laughs> IDRS conference. But that's fine. It was also great to do. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us on Double Read Dish. What a great chat.
Oh, thank you. It's lovely to speak to you both. And uh, I have to congratulate you so much for this podcast. Um, I listen to you when I make reads, when I take the dog out. I've, I've got, oh. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's great. It's, it's so inspiring because I, I just love listening to other, you know, people's different um, points of view. It's, it's great. Yeah. Thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you. <laughs> If you enjoyed that episode, you have 24 hours to drive to Oxford, Ohio to see us live at their bassoon day, or you can come see us at Florida's Double Read Day in March. Go to our website for more information about that. Otherwise, check us out on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and you can listen to us on all the platforms where you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, YouTube, and Google Play. Our next Fabulous guest is Dr. Ann Shoemaker, Associate Professor of Bassoon at Baylor University. So please tune in for that one. We hope you loved that interview. And Jackie, time to end this nerd parade. Go make reads and come to our live show. <laughs> <laughs>